Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. We started last week looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We want to carry on uh, for probably a number of weeks uh, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest piece of, uh, just to bring it down, uh, of course it is holy literature, but even in the world, even in the secular world, it would consider this to be the greatest piece of of, of moral literature ever put together. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7, of Jesus teaching his disciples, and we mentioned this last week, it is very much preaching to the converted. He doesn't teach this to the crowd, he teaches it to his disciples, and uh, wants to minister to them the truths and the standards, if you like, of the kingdom of God. And in many ways, that's what these are. They are standards. They are not rules. It's really interesting. When I was at the Teen Challenge Center this week, I asked someone, what are the rules about such and such a thing? And the guy said something amazing to me. He said, we don't have any rules here. He said, we only have standards. He said, because rules could be broken. But standards can't be broken. What an amazing thought. And it's true about this. The, the way that Jesus wants us to live. And we were saying last week that what had happened was over the period of the centuries, the Ten Commandments, as they were, had been, uh, had been refined, had been developed by, by the teachers of the day. And if you like... The standards of them had dropped. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus really just teaching on the Ten Commandments, but bringing the hearers back to the heart of God regarding these commandments. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached murder, everybody. Murder. And anyone who's murdered anyone should feel a bit uneasy now. Let's go to Matthew 5 and verse 21. Jesus speaking. And he says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But, verse 22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a, a common term of you know, abuse, like idiot, dumbhead, you know, anyone who says Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I, I tell you the truth. You'll not get out until you paid the last penny. Jesus comes to the, the topic of uh, murder. Do not murder. And probably, like most of the crowd, they probably thought, well, we're okay with that. You know, do not lie. I might feel a bit uneasy about a sermon about do not lie. Uh, do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that. But do not murder. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to be okay because uh, I haven't murdered anyone. But what Jesus says to them, of course, is he winds back the offense of murder to its source, which is, of course, anger. In, in most cases, of course, anger. He says, you, you're all very well and happy with the idea that you're not going to kill anyone. But there's other ways to kill people. There's other ways to do people harm that don't involve plunging a, a knife in their back. In fact, we've developed in our, in our culture a little phrase, don't we, that someone has stabbed me in the back, which means someone has betrayed me. If I walked in and say, I've been stabbed in the back, probably you wouldn't call an ambulance. You would think I meant that someone had done something unpleasant to me behind my back. That someone had been angry with me. That someone had betrayed me. I wonder who uh, talked this afternoon about anger. I wonder if you're a, I wonder if you're an angry person. And right from the beginning, I want to talk about, in a sense, there's two types of anger. One type, which is that which is seen, and the other type, which is not seen. So in this room. There will be people who are really, really angry people. But possibly if we sat down with your best friend and said, is so-and-so angry? They might say, oh, no. No, no, they're actually quite a peaceful person. But what they really mean is that that person has got self-control over their anger. And you might say to another, is such and such a person angry? Oh, yeah, yeah, big time. Which doesn't mean that they're more angry than someone who wasn't exhibiting anger, except the one person has exerted control over their anger, while someone else has not. Let's look at the very beginnings of anger, the first example of it in the Bible. Please turn to the book of Genesis in chapter 4. Cain and Abel. It's always good to look at the very first uh, occurrence of something in the Bible. And here we are in Genesis 4, and uh, we're sort of in the middle of verse 2. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain, they're brothers, aren't they? Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain 
and his offering, he didn't look with favor. So Cain was, you can see it, very angry. And his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, um, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen to this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were there, in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Uh, Feels like he didn't master it, doesn't it? God said, this anger that you have, you must master it. You notice what God doesn't say to him. He doesn't say it's going to go away. He doesn't say that that if you just, you know, take five minutes, it'll all be over. No, he understood that something was burning away inside that young man. Anger. But the Lord says to him, it's crouching at your door. And you must master it. What I think we learn from the story is something of the origin of anger. Every time you are angry, you know how that feels inside you, that adrenaline, that rage, that frustration. It's not a very pleasant feeling, is it? There are some people who believe that anger is their friend. These people uh, need to be re-educated because anger is nobody's friend. For a while, it seems like that the, the sense of injustice or something in us is somehow satisfied by anger. But in fact, we must master it. I believe that from the story of of Cain and Abel and what was going on inside Cain, I think we learned that anger has its origin in hurt and fear. Hurt and fear. The guy was hurt that his offering wasn't accepted and he was fearful that it was going to happen to him again. Hurt and fear are are human emotions, but we must master them, the Bible says. Here's a few other things the Bible says about anger. It says that it's foolish. I just want to read these out to you. If you want to follow them in your Bible, you can, but I'm going to go speedily. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 9 says this, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom or the lap of fools. (laughs) Not very nice. Don't hasten to be angry. Some people do that. Some people seem to be more prone to becoming very, very hot-tempered very, very quickly. It's normally a bit like a kettle, isn't it? Have you ever uh, made yourself a drink? And you keep pressing the kettle on, you know, and it bubbles very, 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 very rapidly. You don't have to wait very long. Some people are like that. They're very quick to become angry. The Bible says that angry people, anger rests in the lap of fools. James chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 says this, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
and slow to become angry. I want to say it again. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If the Bible says that we should, as people, master anger, if we should be as people who are slow to become angry, that must mean that somewhere inside of us, all of us, there's a brake pedal on anger. The Bible couldn't possibly tell us to go slow if God had not given us a brake pedal on anger. Can you say amen? The Bible wouldn't be, it would say, when you're angry, you're out of control. Go and sit down in a room or go get a glass of lemonade or something. But no, 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 no. It says, no, no, no. Master anger in yourself. Put a break on it. Be slow in becoming angry. Anger is not your friend. It's your foe. The emotion of anger arising in you is not going to do you good. It's going to do you harm. It's also going to do other people harm around you. But it's going to do you harm. Put the break on it, the Bible says. Master it, the Bible says. And I've met people, I have, and you've met them too, who think that getting angry is going to somehow get them their way. Temporarily, maybe it will. But long term, anger resides in the lap of fools. Anger is something that's going to bring us down. In Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27, it says this, In your anger, do not sin. We'll come back to that little phrase a bit later. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know these, these verses? Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Let me just make two points on that. First of all, this whole uh, idea about giving the devil a foothold, it's always good to see the context of every verse of the Bible. A good Bible student knows that the Bible doesn't mean what you think it means, it means what the original writer thought it meant. And what the original writer has chosen to do here is he has spoken about giving place to the devil. Now, how would you think that you could give place to the devil in your life? Well, you don't have to think about how you could give place because the Bible tells you how you and I give place to the devil by being angry. That's what it says. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And don't give the devil a foothold. It suggests that one of the ways, maybe the primary way, that the devil gets a foothold is through rage and anger that's sometimes in our, in our system. So the Bible says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. What does that mean? I'm not sure I know what that means, but it kind of infers, don't let anger go into another day. It's like God knows that from time to time we're going to be cross. From time to time, uh, we're going to, you know, bubble away inside at whatever, for whatever reason that is, injustices, betrayals, things not, you know, going our way, etc. And going back to Cain and Abel, those emotions of hurt and fear 
that are going to happen in our lives. But the Bible says this, if once you take that anger into another day, once you've, you know, crossed through the threshold of the sun going down, and you're mad at that woman yesterday, and you're mad at that woman today, now things are going really, really badly wrong. In other words, it's not been a temporary emotion. It's not something that you have mastered. It's not something that you put the brake on. No, no, no. Because the, because the sun has arisen on a new day and that anger has followed you to another day. The Bible says, don't do this. Don't do this. But we overcome anger with self-control. Here's a great proverb. Proverbs 16 and verse 32. Better a patient man than a warrior. Better a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. We've just spent all summer admiring uh, athletes. We've just spent the last uh, how many weeks or months admiring people who can run fast, hurl spears a long way, dive into water, and swim at top speeds. We spend the whole summer admiring physical achievement. And uh, hats off to them. I celebrated with every one of them, especially these Paralympics. It's just it's wonderful, isn't it? Just watching some of it um, this morning. But the Bible says this, that as much as these might be rewarded with a gold, a silver, and a bronze, there's actually a more... There's a, there's a mightier warrior than even these people. Not those that can run the fastest, not those that can jump the highest, but those that can control their own temper. These are the gold medalists in God's kingdom. People who know what it is to be able to say, I'm feeling cross, I'm getting mad, but I am reaching for the brake, the brake pedal that God has given me on the inside. Let me read it to you again. Better a patient man than a warrior. Better a man who can control his temper than one who takes a city. We might think that someone who took over a city was pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs> the Bible says more impressive is a patient man. It's funny because one of the translations of the word patient in the Bible, in the old King James, was long-suffering. And often that's what patience is. Patience doesn't involve not suffering. It involves long-suffering. But patience says, although life is not so good today, I'm holding on that things will be better tomorrow. Here's another proverb. Proverbs 17, verse 14. Here's a good one. Well, they're all good, but here's a real good one. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter. Before a dispute breaks out. 
Proverbs 17, verse 14. Sometimes we have conflict with one another. Well, our feeble frame he knows. Sometimes we do have human tensions, etc. The Bible says this, that to start the quarrel is to, is to unleash the dam. I've never seen a dam break except in movies. But I tell you this, you don't want to be around one when it does. It suggests that sometimes we do have tensions with one another, but we should drop the matter before dispute breaks out. I remember one time, and I, I tell this story to my shame, I'm not proud of this, but I remember one time being with my friend, uh, well, perhaps I shouldn't say his name, but I was with a friend, and uh, I was at a, at a Butlin's holiday camp. Everyone know what that is? Yeah. Glorious place. And uh, we're in a chalet, and we were having... A dispute. Now, of course, before as a Christian, we used to call it arguing. But now we're Christians. It's, it's a dispute. It's an exchange of differing views. And it was all about, it was about nothing. About one, it's actually, ironically, it was about the Bible of all things. And to do with one little thing in the Bible that we didn't agree on. And so I made my point. This was at 10 o'clock at night. And he made his point. But he was wrong. So I made my point. And he said, yes, I can see what you're saying. But I think this. And I, thought, and I said, yes. I can see what you're saying, but I think this. We were there for three and a half hours playing tennis with one another. Yes, but I think this. Because not one of us was prepared to let the other one have the last word. Right? And from that time on, and I'm saying this truthfully, I think, I think this is true. Generally speaking, I walked away from there, two o'clock in the morning, trudging around a Butlin's camp, knowing that I got to be up in a few hours, and I thought to myself, why didn't I let him have the last word at 10 o'clock? He could have been wrong just as much at 10 o'clock as two o'clock. No, the Bible says this, if you have a quarrel, you unleash a dam. Better to drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. The Amplified Version in 1 Corinthians 13, speaking about love, says this, love does not insist on its own rights. Wonderful. So we master, we must master anger with self-control. Let me finish by asking a question though, because sometimes this gets raised about anger. 
We know that it's wrong to be angry. We know the Bible says that we shouldn't call people, you know, fools and idiots and things like this. And can I just encourage you not to do that? And uh, by the way, and don't do the whole Christian thing either. Where, oh, he's a real idiot. And then you realize you shouldn't have said that. Bless him. <laughs> As though you've undone your evil. Come on now. I have to hold back, really. I'll hold back with some of our opinions. Leave it, leave it, leave it with the Lord. So we know anger is wrong. We know that Jesus said anger is a bit like murder. It's, a, it's something that's out of control. We know the Bible says that the way to overcome it uh, is, by, is by taking control, by using our break. That God has given us the power. And some people are more angry than others. But this goes back to what I said at the beginning. Just because you know someone who seems very peaceful, it might not mean that they're any less or more angry than you. I want to say that again. Just because you know a peaceful person doesn't mean that they are any less angry than you. But it might mean that they believe in the Word of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. It might mean that they believe the Word of God, that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Therefore, they choose peace instead of war. So just because someone is peaceful and just because another is very angry doesn't mean that they're both, uh, that they might not both have exactly the same kind of struggles in life, but one has chosen to be a peaceful person, a patient person, someone who masters, who knows that anger is at the door of their life and they must master it. So we must master it. But anyway, I want to finish by asking this question. Here's a question that gets asked. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Such a thing as righteous anger. People say that sometimes. I say, well, you seem a bit angry at the moment. Yes, yes, I do. But, but it's righteous anger. Oh, really? Oh, yes. What's the difference between righteous anger and non-righteous anger? Well, when I'm angry, it's righteous anger. And when my wife is angry, that's ungodly anger. But I am righteously angry. Are you really? Give me a Pentecostal break, you are. Bless you. <laughs> Let's look at a piece of the Bible, John chapter 2. Where Jesus gets angry. John chapter 2. You may remember that in John chapter 2, and it's also in Mark's gospel as well, Jesus became angry with the people who were trading in the temple. You remember? So verse 13 of John 2. You're with me, say I. Uh, you're not doing it like they did it in Scotland. Are you all still with me? Say I. I, I, lad, I didn't know. <laughs> I was teaching this week about speaking in tongues. One guy came up to me, he went, I said, you got it, brother. 
No, I was asking you when dinner is. Bless him. John 2 verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip. (laughs) Here we go, everyone. He made a whip. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Just hold on there. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He used the whip on the animals. Okay. Now, if you're an animal lover, you don't like that either. But he did not whip the people. But he made a whip and he drove out all the animals He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And the disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now let's just take a moment as we finish, just to examine this. Because here is an example of Jesus getting angry. He gets angry. Now, we know that Jesus was around some pretty um, despicable people for a lot of time, and he doesn't become angry. He's not too too, uh, blessed in the presence of Pharisees and Sadducees. He's quite, you know strong with them. But here's an example of him seemingly like he has, you know, really come to the boil, right? And seen what's going on in this temple and driven them out. Making himself a whip and getting rid of the animals, turning over the tables, all the money going everywhere. We had an expression when I was at school, scrambles. Do you ever have that? And if money went anywhere, someone shouts, scrambles, and it means if you can get on the floor and get it, it's yours. I don't think this is from the Bible, but it was big in our school when I was 10. Here, Jesus becomes very angry, really, really angry with, these, with, these, uh, with this situation. And the Bible does say this, that in our anger, do not sin. So it sort of suggests that there are times in our lives when there could be such a thing as righteous anger. But even in the arena of righteous anger, where we are angry and we ought to be, there still comes the strong warning. Do not sin. And I want to say this, very, very few people that I've met, and I'm certainly not one of these people, can tell the difference. Very few people I've met become righteously angry and everything about it is pure. No, I don't think so. Jesus was a man quite unlike many of us. But here's what I just wrote down this week. Number one, this anger was motivated by a passion for God's kingdom. 
Number two, it wasn't directed towards individuals and it bore no malice. Jesus was angry with the situation, but not with the individuals. Do you think a few days later, Jesus was walking through the temple courts and he saw one of the guys in the temple who'd been selling doves and he went to go and get him and the disciples, hold Jesus back now, come on now, come on now. Let it go, son, let it go. No, he wouldn't have even remembered them. Because it wasn't about malice, it wasn't about anger against these, these individuals. He was angry at the principle. And actually, just for those of you who like this sort of stuff, what was actually happening was that the temple had several areas, and this area was the Gentile area. This was the, the bit where the Gentiles came who weren't allowed to go into the Jewish uh, um, inner areas. I'm not talking about the inner sanctum now, but just there was you know, stages to it. So these people are in the porch. And what's happened is people have set up a shop there which prevents them from praying That's why Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? All nations. Because he was angry that all nations couldn't come and pray in the temple. So he got mad about that. But he wasn't mad at the people. He was moved by a passion for God's kingdom. And unlike Cain, this anger was not motivated by fear. And it was not motivated by pain. Most of the angers, if not all, that we have are motivated either by pain or by fear. And you can dress that up. You can dress up injustice as well. Turn that into pain. The Bible says this, that for every one of us, we have to master anger. I remember one time, Jane, coming back from one of the wow excursions, I forget if it was Ethiopia, whoever it was, and just washing the feet of the ladies. And uh, she may tell this story again herself one day, but she was just telling me the other day how when she was washing the feet of these widows, she was very, very angry about it. But angry at the injustice, not angry with any, any people, but angry that these poor ladies had had to live the lives that they had. I think there is a place for us to see the needs of others and want to see those needs met. If you're angry because you've been had some injustice done to yourself, then perhaps this is not righteous anger. But sometimes God may give us a burden may give us just a little bit of his emotion regarding something that needs to be changed. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He goes on to finish that passage, and with this I'm going to close now, but he goes on to finish the passage by saying, you know, if someone's got something against you, go and make peace with them. If someone's taking you to court, why don't you go and Befriend them on the way. Become a peacemaker, not a war maker. More impressive is someone who can hold their temper than someone who can take a city. 
thank you for listening and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.